0: Clozapine is an atypical antipsychotic that is FDA-approved for treatment-resistant schizophrenia. Clinical monitoring for neutropenia is currently required by the FDA through a REMS program. However, this program does not provide additional clinical guidance on monitoring for other side effects of clozapine. Clozapine Clozapine-induced myocarditis is a boxed warning associated with a high mortality rate. There are no regulatory standards in the United States on how to monitor for this side effect. Join pharmacist Caitlin Shans to review the history of clozapine-induced myocarditis, discuss possible hypotheses for the pathophysiology, and compare current suggested monitoring protocols in the literature.
1: Despite overwhelming evidence showing clozapine superiority in treatment of schizophrenia, use of clozapine in the clinical practice has been met with challenges, which may have led to underutilization of this medication in the United States. Barriers to use include a variety of challenges, including but not limited to administration burden, special monitoring requirements, and overall knowledge regarding the multiple side effects associated with clozapine use. Today, I hope to focus in on one specific side effect that isn't always commonly discussed with clozapine use, clozapine-induced myocarditis. This has been reported as a rare but serious side effect of clozapine use. And currently there are no regulatory standards for monitoring of this in the United States. In addition, routine monitoring is considered controversial. So today I hope to provide some light on how one might monitor for clozapine-induced myocarditis in clinical practice, reviewing the history of clozapine-induced myocarditis in the literature, and discussing possible monitoring strategies. As for learning objectives today, I hope you'll be able to recognize the side effects associated with clozapine treatment, in addition to describing monitoring strategies for detection of clozapine-induced myocarditis. Finally, I hope that you'll be able to list management strategies following suspected clozapine-induced myocarditis. To learn about clozapine and monitoring strategies, we're going to be following a patient today, a 42-year-old female who presents to the psychiatry unit with disorganization and psychosis symptoms. Her past medical history includes hypothyroidism and schizophrenia. As for home medications, she's currently taking haloperidol, hydroxyzine as needed, levothyroxine, lorazidone, and sertraline. Of note, this patient has trialed multiple antipsychotics in the past, including olanzapine and risperidone. With her new onset disorganized thinking, it was determined that the patient failed her current antipsychotic treatment, leading to a new diagnosis of treatment-resistant schizophrenia. Therefore, the primary service is looking to start clozapine. So schizophrenia itself affects approximately 24 billion people worldwide, which is about 1% of our total population. And the economic cost in the United States, including both healthcare and indirect cost, is thought to be approximately $150 billion per year. Schizophrenia has also been reported to be associated with a reduced life expectancy of about 15 years in patients with schizophrenia compared to the general population. Despite there being more than 50 antipsychotic medications utilized in treatment of schizophrenia worldwide, up to 30% of our patients, or 7.2 million people, will unfortunately be resistant to treatment. Treatment-resistant schizophrenia is broadly defined as a non-response to at least two antipsychotic treatments at adequate doses and durations. And currently, clozapine is our only FDA-approved antipsychotic medication for treatment-resistant schizophrenia. So let's take a look at clozapine. Clozapine is one of our atypical antipsychotics, and it's been shown to be superior to other antipsychotic medications for treatment of schizophrenia and treatment-resistant schizophrenia. One of our first studies looking at use of clozapine in schizophrenia was completed by Kane and colleagues in 1988. This study included patients who had previously failed three different antipsychotic medications in addition to a six-week trial of haloperidol. 268 patients were included in this study, and scores to evaluate efficacy, including the brief psychiatric rating scale and the clinical global impression scale, were compared between the two treatment arms. This study reported that clozapine was superior in the reduction of these scores, with 30% of patients having a reduction in these scores with clozapine, compared to only 4% in those that were taking clopromazine. Further literature to support the use of clozapine in schizophrenia was completed by FIN11, the FIN11 trial in 2009. This study looked at all-cause mortality in over 66,000 patients from 1996 to 2006. The use of second-generation antipsychotics increased during this time period, and the overall risk of death decreased with the use of antipsychotics compared to no use of antipsychotics. But more importantly, the use of clozapine itself showed the lowest risk of all-cause mortality compared to our other antipsychotic agents. In addition to Uh, all-cause mortality and efficacy, Masuda and colleagues in 2019 looked at hospitalization rates and all-cause discontinuation of our antipsychotic agents, and they found that clozapine, in this meta-analysis of 63 cohort studies, showed a reduction in hospitalization rates and a reduction in the all-cause discontinuation of antipsychotic medications. Finally, studies have shown higher rates of suicide attempt rates in patients with schizophrenia compared to the general population, and Meltzer and colleagues in 2003 found that the use of clozapine showed a reduction in the suicide attempt rates with clozapine compared to olanzapine. While I only choose to include include the four studies here on this slide, there are multiple other studies showing that clozapine is efficacious in treatment of schizophrenia, but also reduces all-cause mortality, hospitalization rates, all-cause discontinuation of antipsychotic medications, and reductions in suicide attempt rates. So why is clozapine not utilized more often, and why is it not considered one of our first-line agents? This is likely due to a variety of factors, one of them being the multiple side effects associated with clozapine. And so this will lead us to our first audience question of the day. So with there being multiple side effects of clozapine, what is one side effect that you would prioritize monitoring for in patients with clozapine? You can text your answer uh, to MayoRx at 22333, or you can submit your answer at pollev.com slash MayoRx. I see aplastic anemia, neutropenia, neutrophils, great, I see a trend there. E-monitoring, great, absolute neutrophil counter, ANC reduction, neutropenia, so I'm starting to see a trend here, and I think we all know um, one of the major side effects, so thank you for participating and submitting those answers. So As we move on to this next slide, I want to note that there are other side effects that are not shown here. However, I want to provide a quick review of some of the side effects that we may see in our patients taking clozapine. So First, we'll start with seizures. The relationship between clozapine plasma levels and seizures is not well known. However, it's thought that there may be an increased risk of seizures with increased doses and titrations of clozapine. Hyperglycemia is also commonly seen, thought to be related to increases in glucagon secretion in the body. Weight gain with clozapine is one of our commonly seen side effects, as it's often seen in many of our other antipsychotic agents used in schizophrenia treatment. Hypersalivation is going to be one of our most common gastrointestinal adverse effects that we see. It's reported in up to 80% of patients. Dose reductions of clozapine may help with this side effect. However, occasionally we may have to add other medications to help control for this side effect. Decreased GI motility is also common and can lead to frank ileus within days. Current reports and the literature do show that patients can have life-threatening ileus with little to minimal subjective complaints, making monitoring of bowel movements and scheduling of bowel regimens important in this patient population. While rare, uh, clozapine-induced agranulocytosis may be seen and is associated with high rates of mortality. And I think you guys all picked up on that with our previous answers of neutropenia. And so this finally leads us to myocarditis, which we'll try and focus on for the rest of this presentation. If you were to look into the package insert for clozapine, you'll find a variety of black box warnings. These include orthostatic hypotension, bradycardia, syncope, and increased mortality in elderly patients with dementia-related psychosis, in addition to a few of those side effects that we discussed before, including seizures and agranulocytosis. Myocarditis and cardiomyopathy are also included as a black box warning. However, the only side effect that we have regulatory standardized monitoring for is agranulocytosis through the Risk Evaluation and Mitigation Strategies, or REMS program. So what led to clozapine-induced myocarditis being included as a black box warning? Let's go ahead and take a quick look back into the history. So Clozapine was first synthesized in 1958 by a Swiss pharmaceutical company, and 12 years later, clinical trials and marketing of Clozapine was started. It wasn't until 1980 that the first association of clozapine and myocarditis was published in the literature, and this was describing a 22-year-old male who unfortunately passed away after what was thought to be myocarditis related to a cl- accidental clozapine overdose. Additional case reports mentioning this association continued over time, leading us up to our first retrospective study to assess rates of myocarditis with clozapine use in 1999. So let's take a moment to look at that study. So Killian and colleagues included patients starting clozapine therapy from January 1993 to March 1999 and included 8,000 patients in total. They collected data from volunteer reports submitted to the Australian Adverse Drug Reaction Committee to determine the rates of myocarditis and cardiomyopathy events. So of these 8,000 patients, we find that there were 15 cases of myocarditis, six of which unfortunately resulted in death. Of those patients that had myocarditis, the dose of clozapine at the time of diagnosis ranged from 100 milligrams to 725 milligrams. And all of those occurred within the first 21 days of starting clozapine, with a median of 15 days. And so this study really brought attention to the idea that clozapine-induced myocarditis is a possible side effect that we see with clozapine. This led to the FDA adding that black box warning for clozapine-induced myocarditis to the package insert. And so with this additional uh, black box warning, you may be asking, how common is clozapine-induced myocarditis? When we look at the incidence in the literature, it varies across the world from 0.015% to 8.3%, the highest rates being reported in Australian studies. Of note, this higher incidence rate may be related to increased guidance regarding how to monitor for clozapine-induced myocarditis in Australia, allowing for those practitioners to identify more patients with this side effect. More importantly, that could mean that the actual incidence rates in other countries could be underestimating the actual rate of myocarditis, as this could be due to a lack of standardized monitoring. When we look at the calculated absolute risk published in the literature, we find a range once again of 0.015 being the lowest in the United States, up to 0.188% in Australia. Despite the low rates of clozapine-induced myocarditis in the literature, there's up to a 30% mortality rate for patients that do develop this side effect. So how does clozapine-induced myocarditis occur? So myocarditis itself is defined as inflammation and damage of the myocardium and is most commonly caused by viral infections. However, this can also occur with bacterial infections, toxins, radiation, inflammatory conditions, and medications like clozapine. The pathophysiology regarding clozapine-induced myocarditis is poorly understood, and it's thought to be thought to involve multiple molecular and uh, cellular pathways. The first hypothesis is thought to be related to an IgE-mediated type 1 hypersensitivity reaction based on that acute onset of myocarditis and some of the reports stating the presence of eosinophils in the peripheral blood. Clozapine is also thought to possibly increase norepinephrine levels, and that could lead to result in myocardial damage and heart failure. Oxidative stress could also play a role, as it's thought the clozapine could deplete antioxidants in the body and may have direct cardiotoxic effects. Finally, it's thought that clozapine is thought to activate caspases that can result in cardiomyocyte apoptosis. Several risk factors for clozapine-induced myocarditis have been hypothesized. Some proposed risk factors are non-modifiable, such as age. One study reporting up to a 31% increase of this side effect per each decade of life. Other risk factors are modifiable. Some studies have said that there's an increased risk with valproate use, which could be related to CYP1A2 or CYP3A4 inhibition by valproate, inhibiting the conversion of clozapine to norclozapine, or this could be related to competitive protein binding. Lastly, rapid dose tri- dose tritations has been uh, hypothesized in the literature, and this risk factor they think could increase the risk by 26% for each additional 250 milligrams of cumulative clozapine dose within the first nine days of treatment. I do wanna note that all of these risk factors were in one specific study and additional studies haven't found these specific risk factors to be statistically significant. So overall, there's very limited literature regarding risk factors for clozapine-induced myocarditis and these risk factors are still unclear seeing that rapid dose titration could be a possible risk factor. So let's take a look at an example of how clozapine could be dosed. So normally dosing of clozapine starts with low doses such as 12 and or 25 milligrams, and then we increase by 25 milligrams per day. And that can be split between morning and evening doses. As we reach day nine in this example, we find that a patient could be on 100 milligrams of clozapine twice a day with a cumulative dose of 912.5 milligrams. This leads to question, is the risk of side effects such as myocarditis higher with these current dosing strategies? Should we be titrating more slowly? I think this is currently a gap in the literature that we're not quite sure slower titrations could possibly lead to lower risk of side effects, but we have also have to remember that slower titrations could increase time to reach that effective dose for our patients that are acutely ill. A recent study published in June 2023 by Kai Kutri showed that faster dose titrations led to higher rates of inflammatory adverse events such as fever compared to those slower titrations. Therefore, the increase in inflammation could increase the risk of myocarditis, but further studies are needed. So let's go back in and check on our patient. Our patient's about two weeks into her clozapine therapy and is currently taking 100 milligrams twice a day. She has a new report of mild chest pain, mild abdominal pain, and tiredness. We also find that for her vitals and labs, she's tachycardic with a heart rate of 130 beats per minute, well above her baseline of 90 beats per minute. She also has a slight increase in blood pressure, but her absolute neutrophil count is within normal limits. So the question would be, what symptoms could we expect to see in a patient with clozapine induced myocarditis? The clinical presentation of this side effect is highly variable, and I think it's important to note that some of these patients may be asymptomatic. So, asymptomatic patients can be difficult to identify without standardized monitoring. In some reports in the literature, these patients received electrocardiogram monitoring, which promoted further evaluation for clozapine-induced myocarditis. Patients may also have nonspecific symptoms, such as diarrhea, fatigue, fever, headache, malaise, neck pain. And so it's important to remember that these these nonspecific side effects may be related to other etiologies that need to be ruled out. However, I think identification of these nonspecific symptoms should lower the threshold for monitoring for clozapine-induced myocarditis if regular monitoring isn't already in place. Finally, when we look at specific symptoms, we find cardiovascular symptoms such as chest pain, dyspnea, palpitations, and tachycardia. In the most severe cases, patients can have life-threatening, hemodynamic compromise, arrhythmias, and even death. So looking back at our patient, we see that she has both nonspecific and some specific symptoms. So nonspecific being abdominal pain and tiredness, and specific symptoms being chest pain and tachycardia. Seeing that this patient's only been on clozapine for two weeks, is this a typical time frame that we would expect to see clozapine-induced myocarditis? Let's take a look at the literature. Ronaldson and colleagues in 2011 looked at 75 patients with clozapine-induced myocarditis from January 1994 to January 2009. Of these 75 cases, the time to onset of clozapine-induced myocarditis was 10 to 33 days, When we look even more closely, we find that 83% of these patients develop clozapine-induced myocarditis within 14 to 21 days after clozapine initiation. Other literature has also evaluated the time to onset of myocarditis, further supporting that clozapine-induced myocarditis is most likely to occur within the first six to eight weeks after clozapine initiation while cardiomyopathy is thought to occur much later or months after initiation. While there's always exceptions to this rule, I think these findings suggest that monitoring of clozapine-induced myocarditis is likely more beneficial in those first few weeks after a patient starts clozapine therapy. And we'll see that in some of the later monitoring protocols. So with our new symptoms of both nonspecific and specific symptoms of myocarditis, the primary service decides to add additional labs. We find that she has a C-reactive protein or CRP that's elevated. Her troponins are also elevated above baseline, but her eosinophil count is within normal limits. This prompts the team to get a cardiology consult in which the patient gets an electrocardiogram or ECG showing sinus tachycardia with T wave inversion and an echocardiogram or echo with mild left ventricular impairment. And so while myocarditis is one of those rare side effects of clozapine, this leads us to question, would regular monitoring of myocarditis be beneficial to hopefully prevent these cardiovascular outcomes in our patients? And if so, what labs and imaging should we be monitoring to help prevent these? So currently there are no regulatory standards for monitoring, but there are multiple possible protocols that have been published in the literature. I will not be discussing outpatient monitoring today, as there are differences in accessibility of labs and follow-up compared to the inpatient setting. Imaging, as well as ability to follow-up is probably one of the most difficult things in the outpatient setting. But while they're here in the inpatient setting, we can follow them more closely. Before looking at the protocols themselves, let's take a moment to briefly discuss the a variety of labs, vitals, and imaging that have been reported in the monitoring strategies in the literature. So starting with heart rate or tachycardia, this is often reported in patients taking clozapine, but it's important to note that clozapine itself can elevate the heart rate. And so it's thought in protocols that using heart rate in addition to other lab monitoring could help identify myocarditis. C-reactive protein, or CRP, is a non-specific marker of inflammation in the body. Elevations can be seen with myocarditis, however, it can also be seen with other uh, conditions such as infections. Therefore, it's thought that utilization of CRP in addition to other labs could be useful. Elevation in troponins is going to be seen with muscle damage and is more specific to myocardial damage compared to some of our other labs. And so elevations in troponins that are continuing to increase or have a positive delta change may suggest possible myocarditis. Creatinine kinase is an enzyme commonly seen in myocardial damage, but can also represent damage in other muscles throughout the body. Therefore, it's less likely that it's as specific as troponins for myocardial damage. N-terminal prohormone of brain natriuretic peptide, or NT-proBNP, is a marker of atrial and ventricular distension due to increases in intracardiac pressure that can be seen elevated when myocarditis is present. And finally, as we look at imaging, protocols may recommend the use of electrocardiograms or echocardiograms to look at the structure and the electrophysiological function of the heart in our patients that are on clozapine. So let's go ahead and start and look by one of our first protocols or guidance that was recommended for clozapine-induced myocarditis. So in response to the Killian study, a monitoring guidance was released by clozapine manufacturers in Australia, and that was later implemented throughout the country of Australia. At baseline, they recommended an ECG, troponins, a serum creatinine, or a creatinine kinase, as well as an echocardiogram. They then recommended monitoring at day 7 and day 14 with an ECG, troponin, or a creatinine kinase. Then they had long-term follow-up at 6 months with an echocardiogram. During this whole time, they also were monitoring patients for those nonspecific and specific symptoms that we talked about before. When we consider the previous literature that we just talked about, I think we can find some limitations in this monitoring. First, we saw that in the Ronaldson study, that 83% of our, those patients had myocarditis within days 14 to 21, which would mean this specific protocol would be missing those high risk period time periods as seen in that paper. In addition, the guidance didn't appear to be provided on how to determine what levels of labs would be of concern. So, for example, what change in topronin would you stop clozapine, or what change in CRP would you maybe hold the dose but still continue this medication? However, I think implementation of this guidance from the manufacturers explains some of the higher incidence rates that we see in the literature regarding clozapine-induced myocarditis in Australia. Looking at one of the larger studies to assess clozapine-induced myocarditis, we'll go back to Ronaldson and colleagues who completed an analysis of those 75 patients in 2011. The goal of this study was to provide an evidence-based monitoring strategy by evaluating the signs and symptoms associated with clozapine-induced myocarditis. So looking at the baseline, we find that they wanted a CRP, troponin, and an echocardiogram, And then they extended the monitoring from day 7, 14, 21, and 28 days to include CRP and troponin. They also added vitals for monitoring. So they included a blood pressure, pulse, temperature, and respiration rate at least 48 hours, in addition to those nonspecific and specific symptoms we discussed. So why use weekly CRP and troponins for monitoring? So, looking at the 75 cases that Ronaldson and colleagues found, the researchers identified kind of a typical evolution of clozapine induced myocarditis in their patient population. As mentioned previously, clozapine can increase heart rate with use. And in this study, they suggested that an increase in heart rate of about 10 to 20 beats per minute could be due to the clozapine itself and would be unlikely related to myocarditis. From this point forward, you can start to see nonspecific symptoms that we discussed before, like fever, diarrhea, vomiting, and we start to see the elevations in the CRP, most of the time greater than 50. In the following five days after, we start to see further increases in heart rate, such as 20 to 30 beats per minute above baseline. And eventually we start to see elevations in troponin more than two times the upper limit of normal, a CRP that's still climbing to above 100, and finally some left ventricular impairment on an echocardiogram. Troponin increase was delayed up to five days after the onset of symptoms and that CRP elevation. With identification of cardiovascular changes suggestive of myocarditis, this would lead to discontinuation of clozapine therapy. I do wanna note that this is not the case for all patients. Six of the patients in this study were asymptomatic. In a few of those cases, CRP wasn't elevated, nor was heart rate uh, elevated and was near baseline. So how predictive of clozapine-induced myocarditis was elevated CRP and troponin in this study? First we'll take a look at troponins. Ronaldson and colleagues found that 90% of patients identified with clozapine-induced myocarditis had troponins greater than two times the upper limit of normal, which they reported as 0.03. But this upper limit of normal may differ depending on the institution in the lab that's used. When we look at CRP specifically, they found that 74% of those patients had CRP greater than 100. And so when we combine these together of the troponins two times the upper limit of normal and a CRP greater than 100, they found 100% sensitivity of symptomatic clozapine-induced myocarditis. However, I do want to note that the sensitivities of these labs with asymptomatic cases is unknown. So this will lead us to our second audience question of the day. So which of the following labs would most likely be elevated first in patients with symptomatic clozapine-induced myocarditis? A, troponins, B, NT-proBNP, C, creatinine kinase, or or D, C-reactive protein. So I agree with the audience here that the correct answer is D. So regarding NT-proBNP and creatinine kinase, these weren't really included in the Ronaldson study as not many of the patients had elevation in these two specific lab values. Regarding troponins and C-reactive protein, they found that troponins could be delayed up to five days after the initial elevation of CRP, making D the correct answer here. So Ronaldson and colleagues took one step further with their protocol, providing recommendations on how to adjust therapy based on the labs and monitoring results. So, if patients had signs and symptoms of unidentified illness, or if they had tachycardia greater than 120 beats per minute, a CRP of 50 to 100, or mild troponin elevations, but it was underneath that two times the upper limit of normal, they recommended that you continue clozapine but you increase monitoring to daily until those values resolve. If patients were to have a CRP greater than 100 or troponins greater than two times the upper limit of normal, in this case, you should stop clozapine and consult cardiology. So how do the proposed protocols in the literature compare to one another? And so, in addition to the Australia manufacturer guidance and the Ronaldson and colleagues protocol that we just discussed, I'll add a third protocol to compare and contrast completed by Griffin and colleagues. This is one of our newer protocols in the literature addressing overall monitoring of clozapine-induced myocarditis. When we look at these three protocols, we find that all of them utilize ECG and echo and troponins in their monitoring. This is most likely due to the fact that troponins are more specific for cardio um, cardiovascular damage, and ECGs and ECHOs can show that structural and electrophysiological damage. None of these studies recommended the use of eosinophil monitoring. When we look at the other studies, we find that creatinine kinase, nt BMP, and CRP are really mixed between the protocols. And this might be due to them being less specific for myocarditis, in which the other etiologies, um, other etiologies can cause elevation. I think it's important to note as well that Griffin and colleagues recommended not to use vitals. They mentioned that this may help in lessening the burden of clozapine initiation, especially in the outpatient setting. But I would argue that in the inpatient setting where we're closely monitoring our patients, that monitoring of vitals every 48 hours could be considered standard of practice in many places. When we look at what Specific labs and monitoring were included at baseline and weekly. We find that all three of the protocols at the baseline and weekly really use troponins. CRP and ECG were also commonly used throughout the three protocols. We also find differences in duration with the Australian guidance and Ronaldson saying to monitor for four weeks, but Griffin extending that to an eight-week monitoring protocol. They extended it to eight weeks to capture an additional 8% of patients that may present with myocarditis in the second month of treatment. And so I really think the differences in these protocols emphasize that monitoring for clozapine-induced myocarditis is a clinically gray area, and there's not likely one correct way to do so. And so I wanted to provide some considerations. First would be cost. As we know, some of these imaging, like echocardiogram can be very expensive. And in some of the protocols, they recommend that the cost associated with it may not uh, be of value over the, the other monitoring strategies that we have. When we look at lab availability, It's important to consider an institution and if they're able to do labs in house or if you have to send those out to a different facility, are you able to get those labs within hours or is it going to take days. Also, implementation of any protocol is going to cause changes to the workload and that's going to be in all of the different healthcare staff and so therefore it's important to anticipate changes in workload and selecting a strategy where staff will be successfully able to monitor for all of these labs. Finally, transition of care, while we're not talking about outpatient monitoring today is something to consider if implementing a monitoring strategy. Seeing that this is a very clinically gray area, I wanted to provide an example of how we are currently monitoring clozapine-induced myocarditis in the inpatient setting at our institution. So when we look at clozapine initiation, at baseline, we'll get a CRP, troponin and ECG, and then throughout the next six weeks, we will get a CRP and troponin in addition to an ECG at week four. We still include the monitoring of vitals such as blood pressure, pulse, body temperature, and respiration rate, as well as monitoring for those non-specific and specific symptoms of myocarditis. With the help of psychiatry and cardiovascular experts in the field, the following recommendations were suggested to provide guidance on how to adjust therapy based on CRP and troponin at baseline and those weekly labs. So if our patients have a CRP of less than 10 and troponins less than 15, we'll go ahead and continue to monitor and increase the doses as we typically do. If patients were to have elevated CRP above 10 at baseline, in this case, we'll want to evaluate why they have an elevation in CRP at baseline, increase that monitoring of frequency, so maybe instead of weekly, doing two times weekly or three times weekly, and consider a slower dose titration. For patients that have troponins above 15, regardless of if their CRP is elevated at baseline, we would get a cardiology consult and ensure that these patients are getting ECGs. When we go into the weekly monitoring, if patients still have CRP less than 10 or their CRP has only increased less than five from their baseline, in addition to their troponins being normal, we'll continue to monitor and increase the dose as normal. If patients were to have elevations of CRP greater than 10 or, and they have an increase from their baseline of greater than 5, but their troponins are normal and they seem to be tolerating the medication well, in this case, we'll try and find the etiology for that elevation, increase that monitoring frequency again, decrease the titration rate, and we may consider a clozapine level. In the same kind of circumstance, but have the patient have poor tolerability, so having some of those other side effects that we may that we talked about before, in those cases we would do a similar type of monitoring, um, but in this case we would maintain the current clozapine dose, still considering that clozapine level and trying to figure out why they have elevations in CRP. If the patient has troponins that are elevated above 15 and their CRP is still above that baseline of more than 5 and a CRP of greater than 10, in this case, we will go ahead and hold clozapine, obtain an ECG and an echo, trend the troponins daily to make sure there's no changes, and obtain a cardiology consult. If we're looking at troponin specifically, so maybe a patient doesn't have elevations in CRP, but their troponin is 16 to 50, so mildly elevated, but at this point, it's not changing on the repeat at two hours and six hours, and they don't have any symptoms, we would maintain that current clozapine dose, and then we would order an ECG and echo with that cardiology consult. If a patient has almost everything, elevations in CRP above that baseline and above 10, and troponins 15, 16 to 50 with a delta change that's increasing or their troponins are greater than 50 and they're symptomatic, this is when we would want to hold clozapine, order that ECG and echo, and once again, could get a cardiology consult. So let's go back in and check on our patient. So our patient returns to the hospital two years later, returning with psychosis symptoms and suicidal ideation. Her new regimen of haloperidol and paliperidone no longer working to control her schizophrenia symptoms. A repeat echocardiogram shows that she's had complete resolution of her left ventricular impairment. And so this kind of leads me to my last question of the day. Would you consider retrialing cosmopene therapy again in this patient? And so I'll have you go ahead and place a marker where you think you would um, land on whether or not to retrial. So the left side would be no, I would not retrial clozapine, the right being yes, I would consider retrialing clozapine, or somewhere in the middle would be more of a neutral, I'm unsure. So I see there's a little bit of spread here, maybe trending more toward the yes. And in cases of rechallenging, I will say that there have been successful reports in the literature. However, there really isn't a right or wrong answer in this case. Sorry to trick you guys. Therefore, I wanted to provide a review of some considerations for rechallenging or not rechallenging Clazapine. The first consideration is going to be shared decision making. And so we would want to discuss possible retrialing with the patient, as well as psychiatry and cardiology experts to assess the pros and cons of restarting this medication. In cases of retrialing, I would also recommend increases in monitoring. So instead of that weekly, doing at least twice weekly monitoring to assess for myocarditis. I would also consider a slower dose titration, so maybe starting at 12.5 milligrams and instead of going up by 25 milligrams per day, maybe trying 12 and a half milligrams per day or even slower every couple of days. Electrocardiogram should be considered for monitoring in addition to ECGs to help monitor for myocarditis in the first few weeks when the risk of myocarditis is highest in this patient population. I think it's also important to consider what the previous cardiovascular outcomes were. Did the patient have full recovery of their left ventricular ejection fraction? Did they have suspected or confirmed myocarditis? This is where collaboration with our cardiovascular colleagues is going to be absolutely essential. Finally, previous antipsychotic medications should be considered in our case. This patient has failed five antipsychotic medications and now presents with suicidal ideation. So literature would suggest that clozapine would be beneficial for this patient if the benefits outweigh the risks. There are some case reports in the literature of rechallenges. For example, the Griffin protocol we discussed earlier did look at rechallenges in the patients that they assessed. 19 patients were retrialed, 12 of them had successful rechallenging, but unfortunately, seven of those patients developed myocarditis again and clozapine was discontinued. So overall, there's not much literature evaluating clozapine retrialing leaving this a really gray area where weighing the risk and benefits of re-challenging through interprofessional collaboration and shared decision-making is going to be essential. So this leads us to our final summary for today. So as for takeaway points, I hope that you'll remember that clozapine-induced myocarditis is a rare but serious side effect of clozapine, and there currently are no regulatory standards in the United States for monitoring. However, proposed protocols in the literature include varying labs, vitals, and imaging. Therefore, the exact protocol and monitoring parameters should be based on the capacity of the institution to successfully monitor those labs, vitals, and imaging selected. Most importantly, psychiatry and cardiology interprofessional collaboration is essential in monitoring for and management of clozapine-induced myocarditis.
0: If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics.